0: take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, don't own one, please come talk to me afterwards. We'll make sure that gets corrected. Matthew chapter 13, and again we can marvel at the Holy Spirit and His infinite wisdom that He had this written a long time ago, but written with Uh, not just the original reading audience in mind, but also uh, those of us that are here today. We're watching online, whatever day that is. Who knows how far in the future God will use His Word from this morning. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered around Him, So that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables saying a sower went out to sow and as he sowed some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And this, what was sown along the path, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundred and another sixty and another thirty. Thirtyfold. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do... Thank you for the reading of your word, and we ask now that you would speak in its preaching. We ask that you would have your spirit move in us now. For Christ's sake, amen. As a minister of the gospel, interestingly, I love the first Handful of months of a new president's time of service. I know it probably makes me weird in many ways. It doesn't actually matter if it's a a man or woman on the left or on the right. Neither of those particularly concern me. Uh, Neither of them will ultimately bring about the kingdom of God. I do, however, enjoy seeing what that candidate in some form or fashion Believes America thinks is the good life. Now, I have, as you know, very little hope in politicians, and so I don't actually believe most politicians believe in what they pass. Uh, I believe most politicians pass things they believe will get them reelected. And so the beginning of each president's term of service is an exercise in what he or she thinks. Americans believe will be the good life. And I love it because you can see in many cases, it's what do we believe the good life will be? It's more money and so we'll do executive orders or things like that that will give us more money and it will make us happy because more money will give us the good life and make us happy people. Or perhaps it'll be an executive order that tells me you are who you are and you can be whatever you want to be. It doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense. If You want to be a frog? Go be a frog. It'll be fine. Don't know what the tax status for a frog would be, but we'll figure it out. The IRS will find a way to tax it, I'm sure. doesn't matter again if it's uh, a man or a woman on the left or on the right. So much of it is an endeavor displaying what our, they believe our country holds as the good life, what will make us you know, useful and functional in our culture, in our community, what will make us happy, what will make us pleased with them. I love uh, as a minister of the gospel because you get to see how shallow and vapid and useless it is. You get to see it's an exercise in immediate pleasures at the expense of long-term goods. You get to see how shallow they believe that we are. I'm sure in many cases we are. I love it as a, as a contrast, really, what the kingdom of man values in comparison to the kingdom of God. This part of the the Gospel of Matthew, obviously, I mean, the whole Gospel of Matthew is explaining the arrival of the kingdom of God. But here, Jesus specifically has been dealing with what it means to be a part of His reign. If you were to flip back, most likely a page in your Bible, and you would see there in chapter twelve, uh, your ESV has a handy little heading there: "Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath." The beginning of chapter twelve, Jesus has proclaimed Himself to be Lord of the Sabbath, which in Jewish culture would have been easily understood as a proclamation of total divinity. Jesus not being politically correct isn't offering the reality of him being a good teacher. He is a good teacher, but that's not it. Not offering the reality of him being a good man. He is a good man, but that's not it. Jesus is the living and true God. And if He is God, if He is who He says He is, if He is ruling and reigning even in creation now, well, that demands certain things from those that interact with Him. As we continued through chapter 12, it was a bit of a lesson of, well, again, what does kind of discipleship look like? What does it mean to be a part of Christ's kingdom? You see, this is very much the pattern Matthew uses throughout the entirety of his Gospel. Who is Jesus? What does it mean for me? Who is Jesus? What does it mean for me? Who is Jesus? What does it mean for me? Chapter 13 continues that explanation of what does it mean for me. And here, specifically within the context of the end of chapter 12. In fact, Matthew intentionally, grammatically kind of connects these two paragraphs. Verse 46, while Jesus was still speaking to the people, his mother and his brothers stand outside asking to speak to him. And Jesus does what I imagine almost every kind of, uh, at least this kind of culture of the South that I was raised in, how rude he is what he's about to do here. Rather than immediately dropping what he's doing and going and answering his mother, which uh, many of us were trained to do, what does he do? He said, Uh, Verse 49 stretches out his hand towards his disciples. Who are my mother and my brothers? Well, it's these people. Who's my true family? Guess what? It doesn't follow bloodlines. It doesn't follow kin and kindred. It doesn't follow cultural identities or markers. It doesn't follow national lines or language barriers. It doesn't follow any of those things. What does it follow Well, the the lineage of Christ Jesus, the family of Christ, follows the movement of the Spirit. Those who love Christ and obey the Father. In verse 1 of chapter 13, Matthew connects it and saying, look, in light of this, in light of this understanding that the family of God is marked not by language or nation or culture or your uh, blood or your family tree or genealogy or any of those things. If the family of God is marked by the presence of the Spirit and obedience to the Father, well, what do we do with that? In the same day, Jesus goes out of the house. The giant crowd is there. It's actually so large of a crowd that He can't really... Uh, Speak to them easily, so he goes out into a boat, uses the, the kind of natural echo and amplification of the sea so that they could be up on the side of the shore, and he could have his voice amplified by the water, and he begins to teach them. And uh, again, it always makes me chuckle. There's so many books published out there of how to preach like Jesus. And I love them because they're unbearably ignorant. Jesus begins with what we would have to say without the explanation is the most confusing sermon you've probably ever heard. He tells them a story of agriculture. A sower goes out. He goes to plant seeds. He throws the seed, either very generously or indiscriminately, we're not told, and the seed falls on a bunch of different types of soil. And according to the soil, the seed grows or it doesn't grow. And that's it. Good sermon. Thank you, Jesus. You can understand, and that's why I chuckled when I read it, where verse 10 comes in, and after Jesus gets out of the boat, and the crowd's probably dispersed, somewhat confused, the disciples are like, Jesus, why do you do that? I mean, they're trying to be respectful, obviously, but why do you do that? Why do you preach sermons like that? I mean, I'm going to be honest, I teach a preaching lab. I'd fail a guy for this one, right? It doesn't make any sense, it seems, on the surface. It's not overtly clear. We don't actually even seemingly fully know what Jesus is talking about. And they ask the question, why do you speak to them in parables? And we have to have just a little bit of explanation on parables as a whole before we get to understand this one. What actually is a parable? Many of us are not English majors, or perhaps we've forgotten our high-end literature study from when we were in high school or college. Uh, A parable, it's different from an allegory, uh, but very similar, but very different. A parable is an extended illustration that has a very rich meaning connected to it. Uh, An allegory is different in the sense that if you read an allegory, every single little detail connects to something in the real world or some sort of meaning, so that as you read an allegory, every little thing is significant in the story. The classic example of this is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and every little bit of the story, every person he meets, every activity that's taking place, even the dust coming up from the broom and the person sweeping the room, every little bit of it has a meaning in the culture around John Bunyan. In fact, actually, if you really wanted to kind of take it to a large one, you've probably forgotten because you, it's maybe perhaps a couple of years since your high school literature. This is how The Wizard of Oz was originally written. You forget The Wizard of Oz is actually an allegory about the gold standard. It's about American history. It's a lovely children's novel, uh, but it's really actually a political commentary. It's an allegory. Parables are different because they're not structured in such a way that every little detail connects to the real world. In fact, actually, when we read them that way, we almost always get ourselves into trouble, and we're going to see that in a matter of weeks upcoming, where uh, some of them, the parables, don't make a whole lot of sense if every little bit connects. Instead, a parable is an extended illustration where there's usually kind of only one primary, meaning maybe there's a, a couple of little ancillary things, but the only details that matter are the details that explain that point. The only details that matter are the details that explain the point. Here, Jesus is giving a parable about soil. In fact, actually, when we get to his explanation of what it means, what does he not tell us means anything at all? Well, who's the sower? Boy, there have been dozens and hundreds and uh, probably thousands of sermons preached, and I'm going to humbly suggest, preached incorrectly about the sower. Jesus himself doesn't tell us who it is. Is it the spirit of God? Is it Jesus himself? Is it the minister of the gospel? Is it the Christian? It, honestly, the whole point of it, it doesn't matter. It's not important. It's how parables work. If the details aren't central to the story, they're not important. They're, they're just useless. Push them off to the side. Who the sower is, what they're exactly, that doesn't matter. Not important. Instead, what is important, and our first kind of takeaway from this, is that it should be expected, this is our kind of understanding of the parable on the other side of complexity here, it should be expected that there are different types of kind of positive response to Jesus Christ. And by that I mean, we've already seen laid out, this is how it starts in Matthew chapter 5 and then into 6, that Jesus has been up front, there are going to be tons of people that hate him. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about those that as he goes about his ministry or his people go about their lives that hate them. That's not his aim to deal with. That'll be explained in other places. This is dealing specifically with kind of the more positive or we might even say neutral responses. The type of people that don't overtly hate him Don't overtly seek to harm Christians, but how they respond to Christ Jesus. So first, it should kind of be in our brain. It should be expected that there are different types of kind of positive or neutral responses to Jesus Christ. In essence, I would suggest what he's explaining here is largely what we experience every day. He's not talking about the church in North Korea, where if you go to talk about Jesus, you die for it. He's talking about the church in Fort Mill, where most people don't hate you. They don't immediately try to punch you in the face or you know, strangle you or things like that, but have a neutral to positive response to Jesus Christ. And uh, what he has is the setting of the stage is somebody is sowing a field, again, either with great generosity uh, they haven't tended their soil very well. They haven't amended it and got it ready for the seed. Perhaps they're just over, you know, overly generous. Uh, perhaps they're actually just really careless. He doesn't tell us. All we know is that uh, the person who's sowing this seed is sowing it in a diversity of places. And he gives us four specific types of soil. As, uh, the seed goes out and it lands on it. You have hard-packed soil like a path. It's compressed, it's dense, nothing grows there. Uh, If you were to walk out our front door and look just slightly to the left, there's a spot of that right there when our grass seed went out, where it just didn't take. It was too tightly packed. You have rocky soil. It's shallow. It's got little pockets of moisture that get collected in the rock. The the dirt is good, and so the seed lands. It springs up very quickly, but guess what? It doesn't last because there's no place for the root system to go you have thorny soil, it's probably rich in nutrients. That's probably a good thing. The plant grows up. The problem is there's all sorts of briars and such, uh, and, and they get choked out. If you were to try to walk around the backside of our berm over on this side, you would see it. Uh, these amazing weeds that are, wouldn't choke out anything good. And then good soil. The type that a plant lands on, it springs up, it grows, it produces fruit. Four different responses that he explains later our responses to the kingdom of heaven. And I think it's important that we, as we begin this kind of understanding this passage, to realize that Jesus himself is explaining to his disciples, not everybody's going to respond the same way. It's important for us to have in our minds this category as the church and and, and the reality that there is an essential difference between people. You know, that's the thing that you're actually going to kind of get to here is you see Jesus talking about people in this way. It's it's not just that these people, uh, you know, one of them follows the seven habits of highly effective people and one of them doesn't. It's that these people are different in their very essence. Some soil's good by nature, some soil's not. He's hinting at the work of the Spirit, certainly, but to understand that there are, absolute differences of people, not just, again, culturally, but we're talking spiritually at what the Word does in their heart. Now, I think that's an extremely important thing for uh, those of us that have grown up in or live in currently the Bible Belt, live in a culture that is warmly receptive toward Christianity in general, and that is because so much of the way that Christianity is spoken of in our kind of current cultural moment is that everybody's the same. That if you if you love Jesus and you're fully devoted to Him, if you're kind of meh, wishy-washy, if maybe you're just eh, Christmas and Easter sort of Christian or uh, not Christian, but you identify as it. Or I haven't been to church in my entire life, but I identify as Christian. That everybody's kind of all the same in it. Everyone. There's no kind of essential difference to humans. Interestingly, Jesus disagrees with that understanding. And He's saying, look, we have to understand that behind the scenes, the the spiritual reality is that there is good soil and there is bad soil. There are Christians and there are non-Christians. There are sheep and there are goats. There are those that know Christ and there are those that do not. We as Christians, I think it is extremely important that we have a category fixed in our mind about that. Not everybody is the same in that regard. It's going to make a great difference when we actually go to think about God's wrath, doesn't it? Well, if everybody's the same, his wrath doesn't have a good category in our mind. But if we acknowledge there are those that do not know him well, suddenly it's a little different. Interestingly, as you kind of see Jesus explain here, not only does he acknowledge that there's different types of soil, there's, there's different types of people that have different responses to Jesus. But interestingly, those responses produce different ends. Right? So the response that these people have, hard soil or rocky soil or thorny soil or good soil, the response to Christ produces a totally different end in the story. It's so intriguing. right? The seed that falls on the path. What is the path like? It's hard. It's compressed. There's no place for God's Word to find root. There's no place for God's Word to be established. And interestingly, what happens to the plant on that place? Well, verse 19, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in that person's heart. This is what was sown along the path. What happens in the soul of the person who is hard-hearted toward the Word of God? God's Word falls upon their heart. And what happens? Rather than being established, rather than growing and building, the, the devil himself, the evil one, comes and rips it away. And interestingly, that person is left no better than they started. Their end is no different than the beginning. They began as a path. They had seed on it. The birds ate the seed. And all they're left with is a path with perhaps some bird poop on it. Nothing improved. Nothing transformed. Nothing built up. No benefit from the Word of God. The second category of person that he has here in verse 20 is that of the rocky ground. And this is ground, again, filled with rocks so that it's uh, shallow. It has uh, probably lots of pockets for moisture in it. And that's why it would be easy for a seed to land on it between the warmth and between the moisture. The plant grows up easily, right? Springs up. And so you would think, if you're looking at it on the surface, you would say, oh great, here's a person who's going to end off better than the last one. right? The hard-hearted person, you see God's Word falls upon their heart and they get no benefit. At the end, what are they left with? No different, no improvement, nothing better than they started. This one, well, we're hopeful, right? We even have a plant here. It's, it's sprung up, it's growing, it's doing great. Well, For a little bit. Until hard times hit. Verse 21. Difficulty, persecution, and guess what? That person falls away. The plant is scorched in the sun. In verse 6, it has no root. It dies and it withers. Interestingly, how does that person end? They end no differently than they began, except with a corpse on top of them. Right, The leftovers of a dead plant, a plant that grew but couldn't be sustained and falls over and rots on top of the rocks. The thorns, again, that soil you would be perhaps even more optimistic about because whereas the path, nothing is growing yet, the rocky soil, nothing is growing yet, the thorny soil, you would at least be hopeful because you would say, look, something's already growing there perhaps whatever we we sow will begin to produce. It's how many of us view our yards, right? Look, hey, there's so many weeds, hopefully the grass can take. Never does, does it? What happens? Well, the seed begins to germinate, it produces a plant, and rather than the plant peacefully coexisting with the thorns, The thorns are militant and they choke it out. And what happens? How does that soil end? Well, it ends no differently than it began. It began with thorns. It ends with thorns. Interestingly, the only one of these that sees any sort of kind of change or transformation through the parable is that of the good soil. Soil that's <clears throat> excuse me, probably been tilled. It's uh, been roughed up so the seed can fall in. It has place to take root. It begins to grow and guess what happens? It grows, it grows, it grows, it produces a plant. The plant produces fruit and that fruit is either 30-fold, 60-fold, or even 100-fold. Wow. Now that's a different situation, really. The first three soils, nothing's different from start to finish, just the marks of death. What happens in the last situation? Well, it's replicated 30, 60, or 100 fold. The kind of rates we wish we had on our savings account. The interesting thing, well at least to me, the interesting thing in this passage is what Jesus uses to explain the differences in the soil. It's actually the part of the passage that I I think I complained about the most when I was young, and a young preacher, is why on earth does Matthew put verses 10 through 17 in this passage? Jesus preaches this obscure sermon, verses 1 through 7, And you would think that Matthew would then immediately finishing verse 7 where Jesus finishes his sermon that you would jump to verse 18 where Jesus explains his sermon. Conceptually, that's how many of our minds would go, hey, we've got the sermon, we need the explanation. Matthew does something different is that he injects a paragraph in the middle of it, but that paragraph actually is the most important of them all. Because the paragraph that he injects into the middle is interestingly the key to understanding the difference between all of the soils. Jesus is asked the question, verse 10, why do you do that? Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus gives him in verse 11 and following. It's a hard answer, right? To work through this. You could preach really a month of sermons on just this answer. His answer is, and I put it in kind of modern vernacular, he says, I use my parables as an inside joke. What's well, an inside joke? Right? An inside joke is a joke that is hilarious, but only if you're on the inside of it and know exactly what it's talking about. Right? I, I could stand up here and tell probably a dozen different jokes that y'all would think I was just being weird, and my wife would be cackling in the back because she knows it's hilarious. Why? Because we've been having those jokes together for the last 16 years. Jesus, likewise, says this parables function the same way, that if you're on the inside, they make sense. But the problem is, if you're on the outside, they don't make sense at all. Why? Because on the inside, you have the Spirit of God that is transforming your mind so that you're given understanding and belief. The reality that Jesus is laying out here in this middle paragraph is the defining feature between the soils, interestingly, is not the presence of the devil. It's not the presence of the thorns. The defining feature is the presence of the Spirit equipping the person of God to listen to the Word of God and act on the Word of God. Verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see. Look, they see Jesus. right? They want to see God Almighty. He's standing in front of them and able to see His flesh. Guess what? They don't understand what they're seeing. They're seeing God incarnate and they don't believe. Seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear. How many of us have said at one point in our lives, "Well, I'd love to hear God speak to me directly." He literally was doing that to them, and they would not believe him. I mean, they were hearing Jesus; they were hearing the second person of the Trinity speak to them in Aramaic. They got to hear it audibly. Didn't believe. They don't understand. You see, the real difference that Jesus lays out here between the soils is the primary defining feature of what it means to be a Christian is that we have the Spirit of God equipping us to listen to this book and obey it. That is the defining characteristic of God's people. Now interestingly, Matthew chapter 13, again remember Matthew arranges his book not chronologically but thematically. Matthew chapter 13, is, it's the kingdom parables is what they're often called. It's where he lays out, interestingly, all of these parables about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And interestingly, his opening parable is, if you want to be in the kingdom, you have to listen to the word. If you don't listen to the word, you're not in the kingdom. Now again, he's certainly implying, it's written all through this, that the Spirit of God is the one who enables us to listen. He's the one who works from the inside out, but it's the contrast between the good soil and uh, verse 14 and 15, the prophecy of Isaiah. Do you remember Isaiah's ministry is absolutely a wretched one where uh, he's given this glorious vision of God and God says, who will go for me? And I was like, I'll go. I'll serve. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And then God says, all right, great. This is what your ministry is going to be. It's going to be one of damnation. Because all you're going to do is preach, and nobody's going to believe. And the more you say, the less they're going to believe. Can I I put my hand back down? I don't want to do that. I don't don't want to go preach to people. The more I preach, the less they believe. The more I preach, the more they're condemned. I, I don't like that. It's the contrast between the people of God and those that are not. The defining feature is those that listen. Now again, if we're looking at this from the perspective of kind of what Matthew's been doing, who is Jesus? Well, what do we do with that? Who is Jesus? Well, what do we do with that? Well, uh, here we would then have to ask the question, well, what do we do with this? If Jesus has laid out for us this great reality of just kind of four separate categories of person, three of which are unbeliever and one of which is true believer. There are certainly several applications that we should make. First and foremost would be I mean I would be remiss to not make the call at some point. Are you a Christian? I mean I'm not going to pretend Like in a a ministry like this one, praise God. I mean, with this new building, praise the Lord. We have people coming in. It's wonderful. We're seeing new faces every week. Praise God. We pray for that. We pray for the gathering and perfecting of the saints. I am not so naive as to believe that every person that steps through those doors is a Christian. Why? Because Jesus tells me they aren't. And so it's appropriate that we regularly and often give the offer, would you like to be a Christian? Jesus tells you the first step. Listen to the word. God's people are those that listen to what he has to say and And when I say listen, I don't just mean it in the sense of hearing. It just passes in between our ears at some point, crosses our mind, and moves on. That's what I do to politicians. I listen to them, but it doesn't stay in my brain very long because that's not really a useful thing for me. What Jesus means here is that we listen and and it doesn't just go in one ear and out the other, but it goes into our head and it bounces around in there a hundred and a thousand times and it begins to infiltrate our soul so that our lives become shaped differently by the truth that's passing in. We would call that obedience. That God's truth comes into the person and by the working of His Spirit, He transforms them from the inside out. We begin with the first question, are you a Christian? If you're not, talk to me. Talk to our elders. We've got a number of them here today. We'd love to take care of you. If you are a Christian, I would think it would then also for us to be very appropriate to perhaps consider a bit of a warning. If we're Christians, and it's appropriate for us to think about this, we don't want to act like those that are not. We don't want to act like the bad soil. Now, Jesus does something very interesting with all three of the bad soils. Each one of them has a particular enemy that they're in conflict with. The hard soil, God's Word falls upon the hard soil, and interestingly, what happens immediately, the devil comes and takes it away. As Chad mentioned in his prayer, I think the prince of the power of the air, this, uh, the prince of, of this kingdom, this earthly kingdom that we live in, is constantly the father of lies seeking to deceive God's creatures. It would be appropriate for us as Christians to have a great warning that the devil is currently actively trying to lie to you. That is his M.O. The Scriptures are clear. He is the father of lies and he has not stopped that. And he's trying to do it to you now. If we were to kind of go back to that opening illustration to say, uh, well, what is the good life? What is the happy life that our Americans are looking for? I don't really care what Americans are looking for. What's the good life, the, the happy life that Christians are looking for? If you want to have that, I would just generally warn you, listening to the devil is not the way to do that. Just a general good rule of thumb. Listening to the lies of the devil is not a great way to have a great life. Secondly, the rocky soil. And again, this would be an interesting one for us to think about. What happens there? It it seems like faith springs up quickly, but uh, what happens? Well, verse 21, there's no root. And so when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the Word, it immediately falls away. And I would... uh, This actually, this one's the one that concerns me. Because what's happening here is Jesus is describing very... um, Subtly, a person whose flesh is dominating them. And by that I mean, this is a person who is living their life for pleasure. A person who's living their life to do it their way. A person who's living their life the way that they want it to be lived where they are their own boss, where they are the one who is in charge of how they live. And the reality is the second that it gets hard to be a Christian, they fold like a house of cards. This is the one that grieves me because it's the one that I think we're watching happen in America before our very eyes. We're watching a national church, but not everybody, certainly. But many of whom have been preoccupied with doing it my way. And the second that we've had any sort of friction, any sort of challenge to my way, we fall apart. I mean, I give you two just specific warnings as how I would perhaps see this working out. If you have in the last year in any way expressed in your mind, well, it's my right, I would lovingly warn you, you better be careful. Because interestingly, interestingly, Jesus begins his preaching ministry in Matthew 5 with, What is your right? To be persecuted and die. That's your right. Now, interestingly, we've watched a church that's really bucked against that right now, hasn't it? I have rights to freedoms. I have rights to pleasure. I have rights to all sorts of things. Interestingly, what does Jesus begin His ministry with? You have the right to be poor in spirit. You have the right to be a creature that's filled with mourning. You have the right to be a creature that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, that's overflowing with meekness. You have the right to be a creature that's a peacemaker. You have the right to be a creature that dies for Him. Not to be the type of creature that determines your own life. If you've been thinking, well, it's my right. I might lovingly give warning. Secondly, I might lovingly give pastoral warning if you've found yourself thinking, I'm unhappy Because it doesn't feel good. Now again, many of us as adults are not so unsophisticated as to say it that clearly. But so much of 2020 has been an exercise as a pastor. Of listening to people verbalize this without realizing this is what they're saying. I'm unhappy. Because it doesn't feel good. Again, interestingly, what Jesus is describing here is a plant that does absolutely brilliantly, it does excellently until the sun shines on it, and it gets a little bit hot, and the plant's like, nope, I'm out, I'm done, and (laughs) falls apart. if we only have joy when life is good, if we're only happy when people are making us feel good, if we're only encouraged when people are patting us on the back, if we're only pleasant people to be around when we have no difficulty, our faith is doing something wrong. I'm unhappy because it doesn't feel good for a time. Interestingly, Jesus never promises that it will. He promises joy if you know where to look. He promises peace if you know how to trust. He promises hope if you believe in your mind. He never promises that it will always feel good. In fact, actually, he promises the opposite. The third category of soil is one that I suspect many of us have probably resembled this week, even if we are Christians and That is the one that grows up and immediately has the cares of the world choking it out. What this looks like is a a person who gets so preoccupied with the frivolities of earth, like government and politics and money, that we lose perspective on the things that actually matter. I hate to break it to you. You may have realized this. You may not. If we're still in the early church and Jesus doesn't come back for another 10,000 years, the odds of our country still being around are not very high. Because it's not the kingdom of God. This is a kingdom of man that's going to pass away. Constitution's going to burn. I love it. It's a great document. Written using Presbyterian polity as its backbone. Love it. It's going to burn. It's going to pass away. Your job, it's going to pass away. Your home, it's going to pass away. All the things that are markers of this life, we read it in that Second Corinthians passage, the, the things that are seen are transient. They're passing. I'd love for you to just pause for a moment and think about how much emotional energy you spent this week on things that are Passing. I'm not talking about energy that you have to do to work, to make money, to provide for your family so your kids can eat and things like that. I'm talking about the emotional energy, the things that are you. How much of your life is being consumed? Not just being choked out by the cares of the world, but actually fertilizing them. Right, Actively pouring fertilizer on all the briars and then wondering why we constantly get pricked and have scratches and constantly hurt. It's because we're fertilizing the briars. Jesus has already made this point by uh, seeking first the kingdom of man. Kingdom of politics. Kingdom of the USA, he knew was coming, he just didn't say it yet. Kingdom of God. It's righteousness. Seek that. Let secondary things be secondary. Let them worry about themselves. You see, what Jesus is doing here is actually giving a very agricultural but very pointed illustration to his listeners and challenging them to wrestle with the reality of who he actually is. If Jesus is God, if He is infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, infinitely good, then He's the one who gets to to determine how His kingdom is run. And if He is who He says He is, my job as His subject is to listen to the King And do what he says. Now interestingly, Jesus is so generous. That's also the good life. Listen to the king. And do what he says. Not because you have to. Not because uh, if you're a Christian and you've been forgiven but you don't obey that you go to hell. No, that's not how it works. Our God is so generous that he blesses freely. May it be that we would be the kind of people and that we would be the kind of church that yields a harvest that is a hundredfold. A harvest of gentleness, of righteousness, of hope, of peace, of joy, kindness to each other. A harvest of forgiveness. Oh man, can you imagine what it would be if this church had a hundredfold harvest of forgiveness? Everybody would want to be here because they would know what it would be like to be forgiven. May it be that our God would do this in our lives and in our midst for Christ's sake. Father, would you please send your Spirit to work in our lives? Forgive us for our sin. Oh Lord, we have so much. Uh, Our pride is so great we don't even see it the vast majority of the time. Cleanse us for your name's sake. Amen.